Hi, I'm Steve Duke, and this is the Two Roads Podcast, the podcast that helps you find a job and a life that you love. Today, I had Jack O'Mara on the show. Now, Jack is the co-founder and CEO of Okrabio, a pretty successful startup that's focused on developing RNA therapies to treat liver disease. We don't talk about liver disease much on the show, but we do talk a lot about his life. Jack's a really impressive guy. He was recently named on Forbes 30 Under 30. And with Okrabio, he's made some huge progress, raising, I think, over $40 million from investors like Coast Ventures and Y Combinator. And so we chat about his journey from growing up in Ireland to going to college through to his first job in management consultancy and how he kind of went from there through to starting Okrabio. I think some of the things that we talked about that were particularly interesting was what that very first step looks like. Like, what did he tangibly do when he thought he might want to go and, and co-found a business? And I know that's a question that a lot of people have on their minds right now. What do you actually go? What's that very first step? Um, and we talk a bit about that. We also talk about what life is like as a co-founder and as a CEO, what skills he thinks are most important, what his day looks like. Um, I will give you a bit of a spoiler. The man works a lot. Uh, but we talk about why he does that. And it's clear that he's just super passionate about what he does he's a very funny guy he does do stand-up comedy and but i just had a really great conversation with the guy and so i want to get into the conversation now and i really hope you enjoy it jack the first question i actually always ask everybody i get some pretty interesting answers to this one is when you were a kid was there anything that you wanted to be when you grew up I wanted to be a marine biologist for a long time. And then I wanted to be a PE teacher for a really long time. And then actually my PE teacher pulled me when I was about to submit the CAO, which is the Irish um, college application. I had PE teaching number one on my list. And like the, the couple of days before we were pressing final submit and your fate was sealed, my PE teacher was like, don't fucking do it, man. Don't do it. And I was like, what do you mean don't do it? It's the fucking best job in the world. You can play football with people all day and sit on your arse. So then I said, okay, I better listen to him. And then I did biomedical engineering. And it would have been a very different life path for me. <laughs> that's so good. I feel like that's the best, like, you know, career counseling that anybody has ever received. Like. <laughs> It's like it's like career counseling by by prisoner prisoner vibe, yeah. Um, all right, so so where was this PE teacher then? Tell me a bit about like where you grew up and what like what school was like for you then. I grew up in a beautiful town by the name of Moat <laughs> in uh, in Ireland. It's like uh, it used to be called the I think it's like the arsehole of Ireland. No, the bottleneck of Ireland. Anyway, it, it was a, it's like an old uh, sort of. A town with not a whole lot going on, but I, I went to school first in a in a, a neighboring town called Athlone, which is slightly larger. I went to an all boys school, uh, again sent, both center of Ireland, like bullseye on the map of Ireland. And I, yeah, I didn't like the boys school as much. I had good, I had a good time, but I found it was a bit, could have, it was a bit negative. So I moved to this mixed school um, in Moat with, uh, yeah, with uh, and had a with Ogie, who we know mutually. And uh, I, had, I enjoyed school. You know, I, I, I played a lot of Gaelic football, which is a big sport in Ireland. And I think that was sort of a good integrator to my new home. Um, I had a good gang of buddies. It was a 
positive environment, I felt. Um, oh, any interesting stories? No, used to Mitch occasionally and go on the Raz. Anyway, I, I, yeah, I enjoyed school, I guess, in summary. And so then what, what was the next step? You went to NUIG in Galway, right? Was that where you went to university? Yeah, I did. Yeah. And I guess, I guess uh, when I was thinking about this sort of um, CAO choice, which is like this mad concept in Ireland where you, you don't actually write a, a application letter or think about where you want to go. You just look at a lo- load of courses and pick one and say, that's it. And they're often very specific, like biomedical engineering is a very niche subset of engineering. So it's really hard to understand how like a 17-year-old who's spending most of his time thinking about going on the piss and, you know, playing football, it, it can think that far ahead about where he wants to go. So anyway, I, I, I ended up picking that largely because I had an aptitude for maths and I liked biology and um, and kind of and had this crazy physics teacher who I really enjoyed, um, who was very high energy and happened to be my neighbor. So I enjoyed those three subjects the most. And I was like, okay, well, if I like those three subjects the most, therefore they map to this domain of um, of expertise. But I, I don't think that's a very logical <laughs> um, way to determine your life, life trajectory. Uh, but I guess if I look back on it, uh, yeah. I, I think it's probably the most common path that people tend to take, which is like, um, so I, I did the exact same thing and ended up engineering, right? So not that I had any en- idea what an engineer did, but it was more like, yeah, maths and physics are cool. I'm half good at them. I'll go and do that, right? But you ended up, um, although it is, I agree with you, it's an absolutely crazy way to select what you want to do at university or, you know, for the rest of your life. Um, but you actually ended up working in that space. So, it, like, it did actually seem to be a half-decent choice. So if we jump forward a few years, like, to ground people in what you do now, it did, yeah. <laughs> so so what do you, um, how, how do you describe what you do now? Yeah, so I, I didn't answer your last question very well either. I, I did go to NUIG, which is a college in the west of Ireland, and then I went from there to the US. Um, I actually did a study abroad program type thing when I was in NUIG, and then I subsequently got a scholarship to go back for a master's program to the US, and I spent a bunch of time in the US before doing what I do now, which is I run a company called Ocrobio. It's a RNA medicines company focused on liver disease. We're trying to develop new treatments for chronic liver disease, which is a big global public health challenge, um, somewhat stigmatized in area of, of medicine and affects huge numbers of people. One in third leading cause of premature death in much of the UK, um, right after cancer and cardio and cardiac death. Um, so yeah, so I, I, I work in the field that I CAO'd my way into <laughs> many moons ago. There's there's someone in the CAO office who is listening to this and taking responsibility for your success and all future success of Ocrobio with the system that they've developed. Um, but okay, so I, I mean, I I really want to dig into like what you do now and and kind of unpack that because it sounds super cool, but I think people probably have no idea what an actual day in the life might look like or a journey. So I do want to unpack that, but let's talk a little bit about that journey from you know, CAO choice in university, going through university, but then what was your, what was your first job at university? Because you obviously didn't found this company like straight away, right? So what did you do kind of straight out of uni? 
Yeah. So, so after I did my biomedical related undergrad, I did a grad program in the US focused on commercializing new technologies. So basically they were teaching engineers how to do business. And I always felt I wasn't a natural engineer. I don't know if you felt that in college. I was like, personality wise, I'm, I don't fit the engineer archetype, although I like the same subject areas. I felt more commercially minded. I don't know. So anyway, if it was a good fit for what I wanted to do after after college, um, and I was always quite entrepreneurial by nature. I was in even as a young, a wee lad in the hills of Moat, um, would be trying to start up businesses. Ogie, who we have a friend in common, was an exceptionally entrepreneurial young man uh, when we were 14, 15, organizing buses to discos and dances for all the lads. <laughs> anyway, um, um, uh, I keep digressing. Sorry, I know you ask me very straightforward questions and I go on a whole other direction. Um, I subsequently went to work for a management consulting firm after my college degree, uh, after after uh, time in the US. And I spent, and that was a great, it's, I know people take the piss out of it a bit as a, as a domain and it is, it deservedly should be taking the piss out of it, but it's such a great training ground for business. Like if you want to do business at a high level, you just get tons of exposure really quickly to a variety of sectors and sort of challenges. And, and I think it's like a good sort of MBA for uh, aspiring business people or entrepreneurs. So I did that for three years in the US and I focused on healthcare. So I worked mostly with health technology companies or medical device companies or um, or biopharma, biotechnology companies. And then I, I found after that experience that biotechnology was by far the most exciting sort of angle within the healthcare domain. It's just like a really, it's just a really high, high um, impact piece of, I mean, you can have these profound impacts on people's lives and it's very kind of uh, exciting because it's all sort of, it's, it feels a bit like, um, what's a good analogy? It, it's just very fast paced and very ambitious and can, can be really big or really not big. <laughs> and you don't really know how it's going to go. A lot, a lot of a lot of risk. And um, I, my first job was a bookie. I, my, my granddad was a bookie. Uh, he, he had a, a, a bookmakers in Ireland. And I used to go in and clean the toilets or whatever when I was like 13. But I analogized those, these two roles because biopharma, biotechnology, you're developing products through experimentation. So you just do not know what's going to work. And you do not know at each stage of the product development, you do not know if it's going to work. So it's like a big risk-based decision criteria. It actually is a little bit like a bookie. Like you're taking bets all the time. You're like, do I think that drug is going to be successful? Mm, I don't know. Do I think that like experiment will help me de-risk it a bit? Yeah, I take a bet on that. How much does that cost? And it's like it's like a big probability finance equation in a way. I mean, there's obviously a lot of science that goes into it, but the way I, I kind of my role is is largely around sort of how do we use our finances and resources to get us the best products and yada yada. yada. So I, I, sorry, I, I make those probably analogies a little bit in jest, but uh, it's something to think about. Yeah, no, for sure. That's actually very interesting. I never really thought about it um, that way, but I guess it's very different to you know, something like a, a SaaS business, whatever else, right? Where it's like, usually, like, at least once you find product market fit, you've got an idea that it works and it's about making it better and then sort of right, the other parts of the business around, you know, how good can you get at marketing and sales and how good is your product and competitive. But this is such a, there's a lot more unknowns in the field that you work in. And as you said, it's all about placing bets, right? And understanding like the relative, um, 
probability and outcomes of those bets, which is interesting. I never thought about it that way. I, I, I think it's the exact opposite of a tech business. Okay, hold up one second. I'm sorry to have to interrupt this episode, but I do want to remind you that if you want more content on how to find a job and a life that you love, you can find it on our socials. So on Instagram, go to Two Road Pod, and on LinkedIn, just find my personal account called Steve Duke. And of course, these podcasts I release weekly where I interview people and that's extremely helpful for people to get inspiration and hear other people's stories and what how they did it and what they're going through. But I also release a ton of other content as well to help you both figure out what it is that you want to do and also how to then make that actually happen. So LinkedIn and Instagram and LinkedIn, Steve Duke, just my name. And then on Instagram, you can find us at two roads pod. And this, because I think a tech business you create the market, you know, you can build a product. If people will buy it and use it, you can build a business on the back of that. The technology is, is, is typically not the rate limiting factor. It's the market. Whereas in biotechnology, it's the exact opposite. The market is there. We know how many people have liver disease. We know there's no treatments for liver disease. We know if we develop a product that solves that, there will be a, a reimbursement and a, and like a uh, price and a payment for that. But we do not know how to make that fucking product. And we do not know how, how to, you know, how successful it will be. And there's all these complications around. Do we look at this particular biological mechanism? Do we use this particular chemistry? Do we test it in this particular clinical trial? Is that too high risk? Do the regulators agree with that endpoint? There's all these questions that you don't know the answer to. And there's no clear, there is no right answer. So you're basically taking loads of little bets, like compounding risk on top of each other in the hopes that you make the right bets that ultimately get you to a clinically approved product. And then you know there's a market there. So you don't have to create the market at all. So anyway, so I think it's kind of like an interesting inversion of the, of the thinking. And what it means is you're running a business that's completely based on experimentation. So like you cannot predict anything. <laughs> like if, I, if the head of a BMW manufacturer couldn't tell you whether or not their cars were going to friggin' drive that would be a really stressful job so like i cannot tell you if our drugs are going to work i just have to know, like try to do everything in my power to like give ourselves and people confidence that it will work so anyway so i think it's a really interesting world and a very stressful stressful world at times say so what does that mean like for you personally then on like a day-to-day like are you um I presume you're looking at those kind of different like probability and like risk equations a lot. And, but then you mentioned an interesting point there, which is about like helping people to, to believe that it could be possible. So like, how do you kind of define your role leading the business, given especially what you're talking about there around the, the uncertainty of a lot of the outcomes that you're all working probably very hard towards? I think my role is probably a few things it, it is an uh, an advocate and uh, a spokesperson for the science and the strategy and the approach and why people should believe this is going to work that's most of what i do is talking about how what we do is differentiated and is more likely to be successful than all the people who've tried and failed at liver disease in the past i do think there's a a resource allocation element to my role um, in partnership with our scientific teams to kind of figure out what's the best bet with the funding that we've raised that we have to date. And then I think 
job of a CEO is a lot of sort of keeping everyone moving in the right direction. Like people, especially like highly intellectual scientists, sometimes have a tendency to go off course and try and fight each other. And like, you know, humans are like inherently complex. And my job is to kind of keep everyone going, okay, you don't agree with this person or you don't agree with that. Well, look, the decision's been made and we're all moving in the one direction towards treatments for this these patients who need it. Forget about all the other crap. Let's keep going. I think I do a lot of a lot of that, um, probably more than I should, but it's probably necessary to keep the boat moving in the right direction. Um, so yeah, I think those are my what I do spend a lot of my time doing. That's interesting. I was talking to um, just the episode we released just today was with um, Philip Dorn, who's the CEO of HelloFresh, which is a very different business, right? But I was talking to him about like what does his day look like, his role, and he is like it's all about relationships for him. It's all like hands-on like so much of it is hands-on just like managing the people that he works with the partners you know his bosses whatever else it would be and i think it's an interesting point that i don't know if people think of a ceo if they think that's what they're doing all day is you know and but i guess like what does your day look like then is it are you just in meetings a lot with all these people like what does an actual typical day you know, maybe yesterday, the day before, for example, like what would that, if you could paint that picture for me, what does that look like? Is, uh, I'm in meetings all, I mean, today I started this and I'm in meetings till nine o'clock tonight. Just, I've had like 10 minute breaks in between them. Um, and that's, that's not unusual. Like sometimes I was actually working till like midnight last night for, because I have to do a board deck outside of the 14 hours of meetings. Like, <laughs> like it's, it's an exceptionally, difficult job um uh but I, I try to break it up such that how do you do it you need to be slightly deranged i think to do it <laughs> because it, it is an un, unnatural role like it's it's an unnatural amount of stress for a single individual to be the culmination of so so it's a really because because there's always problems like there's always urgent issues that you have to be able to resolve or think on your feet about how to address. And yeah, you, like you could get a phone call in the middle of the night from an investor looking for, you know, there's always stuff that's like going wrong um, that you need to be able to, to solve for. But I think you got to love it. Like I think I think the thing that you, that that makes it possible is that you have a, a particularly for me working in healthcare, maybe more, I mean, everyone has a mission, but I, th- I think for us, it's very clear. Like if we are successful, we're going to save potentially billions of people's lives like that's mental like that's what i think is so interesting about this sector is it's like so highly leveraged like if if i if this company if i put up with all the shit for another couple of years and we figure out a drug that actually treats liver disease all of a sudden like the third leading cause of premature death in the global industrialized world could be solvable like this is a death wish for the people who who are diagnosed with liver disease unless they get a transplant because there is very few available, there is no solution to the for these people. So it's like it's such an inspiring and motivating goal to be working towards. It's like hard to even articulate. So, so it's really nice to fall back on that when your experiments don't work and, <laughs> and there's loads of crap to deal with. But let anyway, me just comment on that again. Like I do carve out days where I don't take meetings. So on Tuesdays I don't take any meetings. And that is more of a focus day. And I'm like thinking, okay, long term corporate strategy. Where are we going to go with the product portfolio? Who do we need to bring in to help us mature the company? Um, but yeah, a lot, a lot of it is 
meetings with the internal senior leadership team. There's a lot of ad hoc meetings with um, with uh, chair board board members. And then there's a lot of investor presentations just to warm people up to the story and kind of be that advocate and spokesperson for the, the thesis. Um, yeah, and I think the bigger the company gets, the more I'm out of the weeds. I think that what I when I was earlier on in the journey, a lot of what I was doing was just complete and utter bull. It was just work that I didn't need to be doing. It was like a lot of doing the finances, helping with the HR. Whereas now I think as a company grows, the CEO needs to fundamentally shift their behavior and archetype. Like you really become a spokesperson and a and a negotiate a negotiator, a spokesperson, and a diplomat. Like you have to just be like very composed and thoughtful in high stress, high, high, yeah, high stress situations and and be that voice of like calm that moves everyone towards the same end that reminds people of where we're ultimately going and tries to sort of settle the natural organizational chaos that emerges of when a lot of people try to work together. (laughs) Is that something that you think, um, you know, you would naturally have been good at? Or is it something that you've had to learn in the role? I think I think there's a, a real toolkit to being a good CEO. And I think there are areas where I'm stronger than I, and there's areas where I'm weaker. I think an area that I'm weak is you need to be very, um, at times you need to be quite stern and assertive and clear and ultimately decisive and sort of not be too decision by consensus. And I think I'm a very decision by consensus oriented person. And I'm quite a, I'm quite, I have a natural strength in diplomacy, I think. And I, and I like to talk and I like people and I like relationships. So I think that helps with the sort of cultural elements. But um, I think the, the key to being a really good CEO is having all of the tools, like the, the ability to get angry. I can't get angry, but sometimes you need to get angry. If someone's like really taking the piss, you need to say, Hey man, you need to cop the hell on, like stop doing that. But I can't, I really struggle with, with that emotion. Uh, but you see, but all of these is part of like a toolkit. Sometimes you need to be able to be extremely calm and extremely high stress situations. I'm actually very good at that. I never really get that worked up about things, but then you need, you need to be also very clear thinking and strategic on your feet. Like if there's a big issue, you need to be able to, okay, we gotta go this way and be decisive. And sometimes I'm, I'm okay at that. I'm getting better, but I'm, I'm okay at it. So I think the key to being a good CEO is having all of those tools and then knowing what, and then being able to adapt to this, what the situation needs. So the situation needs to be calm down, deploy humor, like boom, okay, joke. And everyone laughs and it calms down the situation. Or the situation needs to be, no, we need very clear, decisive action here. Go, okay, you shut up, you shut up. This is the plan, we're going here, boom. Okay, everyone gets on board, let's go. Where, where I, I struggle with that side of the house when I'm better. I think you, you, need, you need to read the situation and deploy the, nest, the required sort of behavior. And I think um, I'm not quite there yet, but I'm, I'm starting to add some of those tools to the toolkit. Yeah, that's very interesting. There's almost like a meta skill there, right? Which is being able to like read the situation and then know which tool it is that you need to even pull out in the first place. So I think that's a cool way. Yeah, I think it's a cool, a cool way of describing it. Um, but I'm interested. So you're talking there about like, say, the earlier days, right? When you're doing the finance and the HR and everything else. And um, this, those early days are moments that I'm very interested in. And I actually know a lot of people um who listen to this are very interested in because what a lot of people ask me is like hey like i'm gonna go and do my own thing but like i don't know what the very first step is you know they might be confident that once they get in like six months 12 months down the line 
you know, the path is almost appearing in front of them, right? They're, they're, they've got a bit of momentum, but like, what did, because we talked a little bit, right, about you kind of leaving college, joining management consulting, but like, what was the path between then and like founding the company, like practically, like, what did you do? Like, did you just leave one day and it was like, right, that's it, open up your laptop and start working on it or what happened? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And that's also, the early days are probably the most fun, even though they're uh, probably the most busy or whatever. But um, so for me, what I did, uh, which is one way to do it, not, to, not is I did a program called Entrepreneur First. So I was looking for a new job. I was living in DC and I was going, fuck this management consulting bollocks. I'm I'm really in a cursy mood today. Sorry about that. But uh, I, I um, was like, I'm sick of this. I need a new job. And I was just pl- plugging out applications everywhere. And I found this program called Entrepreneur First in London. And it was like uh, basically an accelerator program for people who didn't have any good ideas. And I was like, I don't have any good ideas. This is a great idea. Let's do this. I've, this is my only good idea. So I applied to that. And um, they match you then with people who have a kind of technical aptitude. And they basically have three different archetypes of people. They have industry experts who have been in the industry for 20 years, so really know a particular domain. They have scientific or technical experts, people who have studied AI and PhDs and did really deep ac- academic research or, or industry research on a particular technology. And then they have what they call ca- what they called catalysts. And these are just random people who are kind of energetic and entrepreneurial by nature and can maybe make stuff happen. And they throw them all about a hundred of these different archetypes into a room and say, go speed date each other, meet each other and see what, what businesses you ideas, what business ideas you guys come up with. So I was like, great, I don't have any good ideas. All my ideas are terrible, but I, I'm very catalytic as a personality, perhaps. So and then I met a I met a, a, a scientist with a very clear idea around liver disease. And I was like, great, let's rock and roll. <laughs> and, then, and then from there, uh, he was like, look, liver disease is really hard because we don't understand the biology. We don't have good preclinical models. Animal models don't work. And clinical trials are really hard. Those are the big, big challenges. So I was like, okay, well, how do we solve them? Well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do big data for to target discovery and use AI and computational tools to study the disease. We're going to use human tissue-based models, not animal models, to really study our, our therapies and make sure they're actually going to work in humans, not in mice. And then finally, we're going to think about clever clinical trials that are short-term and get get us to proof principle quickly. And I was like, love it. Okay. Now we had the plan in place for what the business was going to do. And we did the two kind of co-founders in place. And then we were like, well, let's get rock and rolling. And then it was just sort of mapping out the pitch deck. Okay, here's our story. Well, if we want to go ask for money from investors, what to what do we need to be able to prove to people that how do we convince them that this is going to actually work? Okay, well, we need to maybe do a, um, you know, we need to get our pitch right. And we actually, we got like a hundred K off of this accelerator program and that gave us a base to go, okay, well then we need to do these experiments and this little bit of research to just show that there's something in this idea, just give people a, something to believe in. Okay. We got this and we did a, a very basic sort of experimental workup to say, okay, if we test in humans rather than mice, we get a, different readout people went, okay i kind of get where you're going with this and then we got more money and then we got more money and then we and then the company kind of goes from there and you got to kind of figure out like what is that evidence or that de-risking that you need to um give people enough confidence in you and the team to give you you money and i think the benefit i had which is a substantive benefit in the early days was that my co-founder was a highly credible scientist so people kind of saw saw his research and said okay I could take a punt on this guy. He does seem very capable. And I think that is that is a that is a very valuable thing 
for early companies because there's a lot of people who go um i'll start a business i've got i'll start another whatever back-end tech software business but then it's actually hard to convince people that you're the right guys to solve it and the thing that was good about us in the early days was that it was a really random niche idea and we were at a really random niche dude who knew a lot about the niche area and it was kind of like look this is a random niche area but you should guys should take a look at it <laughs> i don't know that was like one of the benefits i think in the early days um sorry i'm rambling now do you no, it's, it's it's interesting to hear that story but but yeah i, I think that that it, getting started is just pitch deck i think pitch deck is where it starts right and then and then building relationships yeah, and I imagine like for the field that you work in, that's probably even more important, right? Because it's like if you're starting a software business, um, sure, you're like a pitch deck can help, but like a lot of even the early stage investors are going to need some sort of proof because you're going to be able to build if it's a simple piece of software, not a simple piece, but like if it's software, you know, you can get started without a whole load of money. You can code something, you can you can get going. I imagine in your field, that's not the case, right? You're going to need like a lot of money. And um, before you can actually start to to move things along, so is that what like I'm interested in? Kind of, if you were to think of like your the journey on this business on say like a ladder, right? And at the end of it, there's this massive like at the top of the ladder is like this massive prize where you're able to significantly reduce like liver disease all around the world. Like, do you have any idea of knowing where you are on that ladder, or are you just going to keep climbing until hopefully you get there? So that's a great question. So there is a very clear process to get there. Um, and it, but there is risks along the way and you don't really know. I guess that's a good analogy, actually. You don't know which of your handles are going to break <laughs> along the way. Like you, you can map it out. Like there's basic discovery. There's like medicine. There's like develop the medicine. There's like test the medicine. It's like, okay, do final, final testing of medicine. There's like first in human. You know, there's like, a, there is a ladder. But you don't know which is going to break. And the more work you do at the bottom, the more higher the likelihood that the top is actually more stable. But if you do too much work on the bottom, then you're never going to get to the top because no one's going to give you the fucking money because you haven't made any progress up the ladder. So and then there's like a constant tension at each step because the people at that step are like, this is the best step, right? You don't need to leave this step. I'm like, no, we do need to leave this step. We're going to that. We're going up to the top of the ladder. And then there's like, you got to kind of fight off people on the way up to the ladder <laughs> <laughs> you're really you're really taking that analogy to the next level <laughs> which i which i like okay but are, are you like you know bottom bottom fifth bottom third like bottom half where roughly do you think you, it is we're moving we're moving we're we're taking yeah we're taking we're, we're making big moves um we're probably about a half uh yeah i think a half uh, probably a third to a half of the way up the ladder. I'm interested in, like you'd say, you know, you're talking about like 14 hour days, work until 12 o'clock last night, on calls all day today till 9 p.m. Um, when I've worked with, you know, CEOs and founders, they work these crazy lives. And from the outside in, you look at it and you go, uh, that's bonkers. Like, how do you do that? I couldn't force myself to do that. My read is that they don't even think about it because they love it and they're so obsessed with it and it's just their life and like they couldn't do anything else, right? So it's not like they're sitting down, they're making themselves work these hours. It's just what they do. Is that, do you find that the case for you or is it something else where you actually are like sometimes forcing yourself to put in the hours because that's what you signed up for? 
Um, no, I have to stop. Like, I, I, I think probably a lot of people have like an addictive personality, maybe. But I have to physically stop myself. Like, I, I, I cannot. It's weird. Like, it's really, really weird. I like I would for a long. I mean, it still happens, but I'm kind of getting better at controlling it. But I would like wake up in the middle of the night and be like, okay, I've got to send this fucking email. <laughs> like, I'm like, what are you doing? Go to sleep, man. And it's like. It's like oh, it, it is like an addiction. Like it, it is, an, it's like a proper addiction. Um, and yeah, it, I think I don't know. It depends on the person. I'm getting better. I think that's also like a like a CEO can't behave like that. I think there's this difference between a founder and a CEO. And I'm trying to become a CEO, and I'm really a founder at heart. And I'm like trying to go on this journey to become a, a more mature CEO because a more mature CEO doesn't fucking wake up in the middle of the night thinking about it. Maybe they do. I don't know. But but I, I, I think it is a part of the job. You know, you're you're just under a lot of pressure and there's a lot of things that you have to do to drive the business forward. So you kind of sign up for it and you kind of... And then I think after a while of doing it, you actually don't even notice it anymore. It's You're like, you, you kind of like, it just becomes your day. Like, you, you know, you go to work, you come back, maybe you go for dinner and then you just go back to work. And like, that's kind of... Um, it's a bit it's a bit weird yeah and, and what was i gonna say uh i had a thought there yeah I, I think the thing is though you you realize your limits so and you get kind of very good at optimizing for for like how to maximize your output so like i am way more sharp in the morning so i'll do a lot of my like high harder work or harder meetings or more like you know in the morning and then i'm kind of slower in the afternoon so i book all my kind of check-ins and sort of less intense meetings then and then i slow down a lot from like seven from like 5 30 to 7 maybe so then i come to go for food or try to do something social and then i turn on again at like 7 30 for like three hours and then i'll give it another boost burst and then i pass out <laughs> and then um, and then i kind of figured out my rhythm and then the other thing is i need to take a i need to take a decent break every three months if i don't take a decent break i become problem i probably i'm like really unclear in my mind so i like we'll do like a week or two off every three months and be like okay now i come back and i'm like properly uh properly ready to rock again and i can feel myself over that period i'm like go go go, go. and then i slowly start to go okay no this isn't working for me now i need to take a break and then boom i'm like off for a while and then i feel a lot better that's cool your um your day sends like um almost like that of a toddler or something, you know? It's just like, go, 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 stop for dinner, keep going, pass out, you know, wake up again the next day and do it all again, <laughs> which I, which I kind of like. <laughs> um, but that's, yeah, I'm, I'm interested to know, um, like a bit more on, like that's kind of obviously on, on the work side of things, right? And you're, you're clearly spending a lot of time on it. Um, but, you know, do you kind of have, a, for the want of a better word, like a life philosophy or any sort of set of structures that you kind of refer to when you're making decisions, like whether it was to join Entrepreneur First or like co-found this business and, and lead it and whatever else, um, or are you just a bit more kind of like play what's in front of you and just go with the flow? I have three things I tend to optimize for with all my big life decisions. One is what... How is this going to make leave the world a better place than I found it? Is it like an uh, impactful endeavor? 
Uh, and that tends to be, even when I was going into consulting, I thought healthcare is a whole domain. It's like a very impactful um, space. I don't think I'm going to leave it. I may go into, I used to do some work on global development as well. I think that's a very impactful work um, and economic empowerment around the world. Anyway, so anyway, that's like those like big picture focus. And then the second is, am I going to be really challenged by this work or this project or whatever this is? Is it going to really push me? And I think, and I think the, I don't know. That's like a self-masochistic thing. I don't know where that comes from because none of my family have it. My family are all like teachers and really, really chilled. And like, so, so I have like this weird innate like desire for self just <laughs> to just challenge myself a lot. Um, and that, that goes to like doing marathons, doing stand-up comedy, forcing myself to go to the gym at ridiculous hours in the morning. And it's like, it's like a self-infliction uh, obsession. Anyway, I don't know what that is, but, and then the last one, is is it going to be good crack like am i going to have a good fucking time doing it and if i'm not if those three things aren't met i it won't i won't do it typically so like that goes back to like comedy or whatever or like poetry i do i, I always like po- anyway there's like a lot of things that i where i find joy uh, and i try to like map them into those sort of big questions yeah what, what are those some of those things then uh i started doing stand-up comedy recently again out of this like self just really wanted to force myself to do it, even though it made me really uncomfortable. Uh, and then I kind of enjoyed it in the end. I think it's like quite a fun, um, fun thing. Um, what else have I been doing? Uh, I do, I do like long uh, endurance, um, like long runs and and cycling and so and so on for cycled to Oxford from London recently. Um, and, and not really a difficult one, but I'm a big fan of poetry. You know, I love, I love a good poem, uh, probably something in the Irish genes there. Um, so I spent it, I spent it as another sort of daily routine. I tended to like close out my day listening to poems and that sort of helps me calm down and fall asleep. Um, there's a really good podcast called poetry abound by another Irishman that i like quite a lot. Um, and yeah, what other, I like reading a lot too. I try to read before I go to bed too, to try to slow my mind down. And, and also sort of, I read like, uh, novels and like, uh, not work related stuff. So stuff that like makes the heart go boom, you know, uh, I read this amazing book that I just finished that like kept me up all night, which is really unhealthy because I need to sleep. Um, but it was called tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. And it's about these two folks who, co-found a gaming company in the 90s and it's like their journey the two individuals and and a third a third individual and it's like so beautifully uh accurate about the challenges of co-founder relationships number one uh but it also is incredibly moving and probably the most beautifully written book i've ever read and uh would recommend it to all your listeners I'm going to check that out myself, actually. Um, To go back to what you're saying about like the three reasons. So I love those three reasons. I think it's great. And you kind of have to have all three before you go and do something, which is cool. And the the first one that you have, right, that it's going to leave the world in a better place. And why is that so important to you? Because, you know, a lot of people, I think, have or might want to have that motivation. And... but like, why is it actually important to you versus the other two of, you know, for doing something challenging or having a load of fun? Why is that first one so important? Yeah, I I don't know. I, I've always sort of felt that. Like I, I used to do a bunch of, when everyone was going on J1s in college, I went to 
Nepal to do development work and I went to Tanzania to do development work and um and I always and even when I was like in school I was trying to get to Uganda for some program but like mother wouldn't let me go I can't remember but um I've always been I, I, I've always like wanted to uh I don't know kindness is like an important sort of um theme for me I think it's it's kindness is uh and even in like personal relationships and stuff like I just think kindness is such a fucking important attribute in the world we don't have enough kindness on this earth um and i don't know maybe i get it from my mother's my dad's a very kind man like he's a very he's so opposite to me in almost every way but he's we he's very kind and i think that maybe was an inspiration to me when i was growing up my mother is also kind she's a bit more erratic i'm um, which i can relate to uh but she's also quite i don't know maybe maybe and i had like a bunch of fucking priests in my i know they weren't particularly kind but i guess there's like maybe it's something genetic i don't know i don't, I don't know i don't know why why that's important to me but maybe it's uh raring in that i don't know given given your description of your parents i'm starting to wonder if we uh are perhaps brothers uh long lost brothers <laughs> i have a very similar situation where i would say i <laughs> really yeah for sure like my dad is my dad's actually from Roscommon, so he's not a million miles away from from where you're from and uh ah, maybe we are cousins maybe we are cousins <laughs> yeah <laughs> Uh, but very much has that uh, like I, that's one of the things i would have taken from him is just like a very kind man would have worked as a teacher like all his life would be i mean completely different to him in so many ways but like that kind of kindness is something that i think is is quite nice and i agree with you like no matter what you're doing like, i actually get really pissed off sometimes where there's something you'd be doing in work or in life or whatever and it's like okay it didn't work out for whatever reason but like there was no need for that person not to be kind like no matter what you're doing, you can always be kind. Even if you have to do something really shit, you can you can be kind. You can do it in a nice way. Like, and so I, I agree with you on that one. You can. You can even do. You can even do anger in a kind way. Like you're really pissed me off. Look, you gotta be, look. Let's talk about why this is a problem. You know, you can do. You can always make a kind. You never have to be insulting. You never have to be cruel. Yeah, I, I don't. I really don't think you do. I very much agree with that. I've got probably just two more questions uh, before we wrap up, Jack. Go for it, yeah. So the first one would be like if if someone is, say, in college or in their first couple of years out of college and they're considering the path that you've gone down, right? So whether that be, you know, an accelerator type thing like Entrepreneur First or else just like founding their own business, like a venture-backed business where they're really going to go for it. Um, what would you say to them before they make that leap either to make sure that it is something that they want to do or you know hey make sure to watch out for xyz because it's something i never thought about and, and it's kind of important relationships like people that you work with are the most important thing for your own mental sanity so like really investing in building a super strong foundation and the problem if you're going to start something with someone is that you're going to disagree on almost daily you're going to constantly disagree about the decisions and directions of the company is going and they're going to get more serious the more the larger and more consequential the decisions become and you have to find a way to disagree in a healthy way like you got to find everyone has different combat styles like some people are more retreat some people are more aggressive and there's like natural tendencies but you have to find a way to do it that ultimately everyone comes away going okay 
I like the I get the decision. I think it's the best decision for the business. It's about the business. It's not about me or you. It's not about either of our personalities or egos or whatever. It's about what is going to be the right decision for the business and that truth seeking or that desire for the best outcome wins every time, irrespective of our independent views on the topic. So I, I, I think like really investing in, in how to have healthy conflict early on, I think, I think is important. And maybe a lesson, a lesson for me. I don't think we did a great job of that. And I think, yeah, just, just really being on the same page and like deeply understanding the people that you're going to be around all the time and making sure that you, you're like 100% bulletproof. And it's easy to be nice, you know, it's easy to be friendly and nice. And like, you guys get on, you go for a beer, but like, at the core, when push comes to shove, do you really have each other's like, are you going to be tight, you know, and, and how are you going to get on? Are you going to deal with the challenges and like the relationship challenges that are inevitable in a highly intense um, sort of startup build, build environment? Um, I don't know. I don't know if that's helpful or not, but I think that's, that's for me a, a lesson. No, I, I, I think that's, I think that's a really great piece of advice. I think you could actually do a whole podcast episode on how to, actually do that because i think it's i think it's hard but i completely agree that it's important i haven't founded a startup but i've worked at them and i know that if you have that culture and that ethos of like been able to just we actually had it at mckinsey where it was very like the best answer wins and it's not personal and we can have like big arguments about a problem but none of it is personal i thought that like you were just able to get to such good answers from that and then everybody would leave and you could have a raging argument with somebody and then straight after, it's like, right, we go grab a beer. Yeah, Grant. That 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 is, I I think consulting is is so good for that. Like, and the way they give feedback, it's so constructive. You know, and, and I didn't realize how hard this is outside of that environment. And I think it's partially because people are young and they want to learn, and they're also like straight A, super smart people who are like, okay, how do I get better? How do I get? And they want to get better. Whereas, like in the real world, <laughs> like that's not always. People are older. People are more like recalcitrant to feedback and like more. This is the fucking way I've always done it. Fuck you. It's like, hold on a minute. Like we need to get here collectively. Like you know, and, and it actually becomes really, uh, really hard. I think McKinsey, and maybe that's why they're. I know people love to take the piss out of them, and I think they probably deserve it. But at the same time, they're managing the managing consultants are ma- are good at management, and it's like, how do we have unbiased, unemotional clear debates like get to a clear resolution is the best interest of everyone in the business how do we like give feedback that's constructive and puts the person's development at the heart but doesn't shy away from being critical you know and it's very blunt like and all those like basics are so and it's just so much more fun i know i know that particular environment is quite tense as well but it's really easy when everyone reacts like that it makes the whole work of a running a business just infinitely more uh more more easier and more productive you agree it's definitely the part of mckinsey that i probably missed the most it's funny um i was having this conversation with my mum the other day i was driving in the car and i was asking her about the podcast because i always just want to get feedback on it which is kind of left over from mckinsey and we're like you know what, what what do you think about it like what could i do better whatever else and she's like oh it's great no it's great you're it's fantastic and you do this so well and that's great and i was like that that's wonderful mom and i know you're my mom so you have to say that but like it's fairly useless to me like i need to know what what i can do better in it and so i think that's definitely a hangover from um from my mckinsey days that kind of craving of of feedback but i've got one more question um before uh, before we wrap up which is and you may not you may not have thought about this one because uh well you just mightn't have but 
if there's somebody, say, in their 20s and whatever they're doing, they're not loving it. They're like, it's grand, right? Or maybe they hate it, but they don't know what it is that they really might want to do. What would you say to that person? I mean, I got, I mean, part of me says I got lucky. Like I, I took a punt, I took a risk, but I, I actually do love what I do and it's very rewarding and I'm really enjoying it. And I was that exactly that person. I think most people in their like mid twenties or early twenties go, okay, I'm either leaving college and what I want to do, or I've done a job for a couple of years and I don't really like it that much anymore. I want to think of something more impactful or more exciting to, to go and do. And like what worked for me may not work for, probably doesn't work for most people, but is to, t- I took a punt and I like gave up the well-paid job, gave up my American visa and was like, I'm fucking moving to London and I'm going to get no money and go on this random accelerator program and hope it works out. Uh, and it did work out, but that was a risk. And then I didn't pay myself, you know, I took a significant salary hit and I was living in an apartment in London that was 200 pounds a month. That's how fucking tight I was. I'm still a tight fucker, <laughs> but like, uh, like, you know, um, and and then and then I think that bet, you know, I guess it's like a risk profile thing, but like taking a big bet can sometimes pay off. It could have ended up going nowhere and then just giving up whatever you know thing, whatever I had. But um, I think a bit of risk tolerance is probably a good thing for most people because it gives you puts you slightly from fair advantage. And the other thing I tell people is like talk, you know, network, like fuck, like you meet people who are doing interesting things and like just reach out to them and they might not take your call, but they might say, okay, let's go for coffee or, you know, and try and make it personalized to increase your odds of success with that. But, you know, I, I think meeting people and spending time with people and sort of building your network is like inevitably going to be increase your serendipity odds. Um, I don't know that that would maybe my parting advice and have fun. <laughs> yeah, it's good. I think we've, we, we, we've come full circle to, um, you know, understanding risk and probabilities, but I think it is good advice that, uh, you know, it, but especially in your twenties, right? I think it's it's easy. It's obviously easy to say, but it's like of all the times, it probably is the time where you can ramp up um, the risk appetite a little bit more because you know, worst case scenario, you do something for a few months and you fall back and you go back to what you were doing before, or something similar. So, I think that's um, I think it's actually pretty pretty decent advice so jack thanks so much for um for coming on for the chat i really enjoyed it if people want to learn more about you or follow you or the journey with the business um where's best for them to go yeah i do a little i do a little bit of tweeting uh jack underscore o underscore mara uh and then linkedin is probably good too and i have an instagram but i don't really use it very much but um yeah hit me up always happy to to chat and um, thank you so much for having me, Stephen. It was a pleasure talking. I hope you enjoyed that chat that I just had with Jack. I told you he's a funny guy. And uh, well, yeah, I was laughing a lot <laughs> throughout the whole episode. A few interesting things that I took away from this. So I think the first one was when I asked him about, you know, what skills do you need to be good as a co-founder and as a CEO? And he says it's all about managing relationships, your ability to, you know, be a diplomat and to get people all aligned on the same direction, the same solution, even if they don't all agree. And that seems to be a common trend coming up with like people that I talk to. Philip Dorn said the same thing, right? He's another CEO and says it's all about managing, building, maintaining those relationships and getting people aligned. And so it's, it seems to be this common theme that keeps coming up as a very, very important soft skill if you want to lead a business and something that people should think about developing. 
I think the second thing that I really loved about the chat was when I asked him, you know, what's your framework for making decisions? And he was like, well, I need these three things before I do anything, right? He wants to have a really big positive impact on the world. He wants something that's challenging for himself, right? Something where he's really going to learn and feel tested. And then the third one was just about, you know, it's going to be good crack. And if anybody who's not Irish, that means good fun. And I think of the, all of them, I love the third one the most, because I think a lot of times we look at things very rationally and we want to make an impact or make good money or learn or whatever else. And of course, those are all really important, but I think there's so much to be said for just making sure that you're having fun in whatever you're doing. And I love that that was, of all the things that he considers, that was a top three. I asked him, of course, about if there was somebody in their 20s or 30s and they're trying to figure out what they wanted to do what was his what would his advice be and his first one was about you know being willing to take risks turning up that risk appetite a little bit and taking the leap because as he said himself if he didn't take the leap to go into into entrepreneur first he never would have ended up where he is now in a job that he seems you know pretty obsessed with and really really enjoys and you know he didn't know what was going to come out the other side of entrepreneur first when he went into it, if anything. And so it was very much a leap of faith. And I think there's a lot to be said for that, for just, just taking a bit of a leap, turning up that risk profile, especially if you're in a position where you can accept a little bit more risk. And then the second piece of advice he said was about just getting to know people, right? And that's what kind of I'm hoping to do a little bit with this podcast is I'm getting to meet new, interesting people like Jack, but then also kind of introducing them to the audience as well. And so I would say, if you're interested in an area you know, a cold DM or a cold email can really go a long way. You might send 10 and only get one response, but that one response, you might learn a lot from that person and you might find something interesting or start to expand your network through them. So I think it's really important if you're not sure what to do, it's a great way to just go out, meet some new people, talk to them, figure out what sort of jobs are out there as well. So that's all for this week. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you want to follow along on socials for more content you can follow my personal account at steve duke on linkedin and then on instagram you can get the podcast account which is at two roads pod awesome well i hope you enjoy this week and i will see you next week with the next episode of two roads